a pleasure to be back here uh, this weekend. We're so thankful for the opportunities we've had to share. Uh, it's just been a blessing. And you guys have just partnered with us over years and enabled us to really do what God's called us to do over uh, many years in different places and spaces. And so we're very thankful for that. This morning, I want to touch on an area of, of our lives that creates a lot of confusion, a lot of confusion for a lot of us. Uh, we are currently facing a period of time as a family uh, where we have uh, two seniors in high school. We have twins, our last two sitting right up here, Amelia and Tyler. They are finishing their last year in high school. And so we have five kids. We've already gone through this three times. Now we're doing it fourth and fifth. And one of the questions that we're dealing with almost daily uh, is, what will I do with my life? Where am I going to go? What am I going to be? It's this constant wrestling match with trying to determine where we will end up. And it doesn't matter if you're graduating from high school, getting ready, getting ready to graduate from college, or you're 50 years old. There is the same question that pops up many, in many of our lives throughout the, the history of our lives where we ask ourselves, what are we supposed to be doing? What am I supposed to be? Many times we have to reinvent ourselves. We have to come up with a new plan because things are changing around us. And many of us struggle with that. This isn't a, a, a problem that's new. This is a problem that's existed throughout all of mankind, throughout all of history. It's interesting to go back to the Reformation. And the Reformation confronted the church of the day, the Catholic Church, and tried to reform it. Many things were out of place, obviously. But one of the pieces that we don't really focus in on that the Reformers confronted during that period of time was the idea of the vocation, the calling. As it specifically applies to God raising up men and women in the church. They were confronting a system that had been focused in on that there were specific people that God called. Everybody else just supported that. Those people were the priests and the nuns, the monks. But everybody else, they didn't receive a calling. They just showed up and received the blessing from those who were called. And their reformers said, no, that's not the case at all, that the Bible teaches us that we are all called. Now, I know that word called carries a lot of mystic, mystical understanding, and maybe a lot of people want to stay away from it. The word vocation is Latin for the word calling. It's specifically connected to two things that we find in Scripture, that there's a general calling for all of us, that we are all called, we share a calling, that we are called to become like Jesus, that God is at work in those of us who have been born again, those of us who have understood, placed our trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We are born again, but we are not just changed positionally, but we are given new purpose. And that purpose fits into the greater mission of God. Now that general calling to become Christ-like, we share together. But there is also a specific calling on each of our lives. This specific calling is according to your place in the kingdom. Your place in the local church or in the universal church. Your place in fulfilling what God is accomplishing in his mission here and now. He has wired you. He has created you. He's given you temperaments and personalities. He's given you capacities. He's given you giftedness and talents that he desires to align with his mission and use in his purposes. Most of us are confused about that. 
There's a crisis in the church today that the majority of the people would probably associate more with what the reformers found in the 1500s than what we should find today. That many of us are satisfied with attending, with spectating, with going and receiving, but not being. If I was to travel home with you today and sit at your dining room table and talk about what you do for a living, many of you would find it very easy to share with me what you do, what your occupation is. You would say, this is what I do for a living. And you could probably go into great detail. Some would have more passion than others. But it wouldn't be difficult. But if I then turned to you and said, okay, now tell me what your vocation is. What is your calling? As a born-again believer, as somebody who's in, in the mission of God, what is your calling? You probably would give me a very confused look. And you might stumble around with a few words and take a few stabs at trying to figure that out. But the sad piece is that the majority have no clue. We are lost. And if I was to tell you that your occupation is not your principal peace in life. Your occupation can never give you the identity you're supposed to have. Your occupation can never fill the hole that is deep in your soul. That your vocation, your calling, and what we'll find out, your assignment is what you are to be living out. That your occupation now supports and can fulfill in many ways helping your vocation to be real. But your occupation is submissive to your vocation. Now I want to go to 1 Corinthians and kind of lay out a little bit of a, a testimony and an argument. But before we go there, I want to lay some groundwork. In the book of Acts, we find the testimony of the church being scattered through persecution. In Acts chapter 11, the church has been persecuted and been scattered. It's, it's left Jerusalem. And those who left carried the gospel on their backs and went into different communities. And as they went into communities, the gospel always produces church. The gospel just doesn't produce a singularity and somebody who comes to Christ. It always produces church. And in producing church, this was a new thing that the, the, the church in Jerusalem couldn't quite grasp, especially when it went into places that weren't Jewish. And so in Acts chapter 11, we find the, the church in Antioch, mainly composed of Gentiles, people who were not Jews. And so the Jerusalem church says, hey, we're not too sure what's going on here. We need to make sure and give a stamp of authenticity that this is truly the church of Jesus Christ. And so they sent a man. This guy was to go investigate, interview, and observe. And as he goes to Antioch, Barnabas realizes that this is a real church. But he recognizes that the calling of the church is not to stay in the general, right? We're all called to be transformed, to be created in the image of Jesus. But we are to also be mobilized into our specific assignments, that we have a calling over each of our lives. And so he looks at this church in Antioch and he says, we're missing, we're missing a piece here. And he goes and finds Saul. He goes and finds Saul and he brings Saul into this church and says, Saul, help me to equip, to train up, and to let God use this church in the world to take the gospel out. So we know in Acts chapter 11, Saul comes in and he begins to teach and to train and to, and to guide these new believers. 
And these two men, they now form and become part of a, an elder team. But it doesn't stop there. This man Saul now is raised up and called out with Barnabas to become church planters. You see, his assignment keeps changing. God shifts gears with this man Saul, and he goes out, and we know that in Acts chapter 11, 11 as he moves out, his name changes to Paul. Because now he's working with the, the Gentiles. And he begins to plant churches. His assignment has changed, and this new assignment's a tough one. And he goes out and he crosses borders into different countries and different cities. And we find him popping up in places like in Corinth. And he plants a church in Corinth. He does a work there, a work that, that is truly amazing. As he reaches out into the community, he, he mobilizes people with the gospel message. People like Aquila and Priscilla, who are raised up come to Christ and then he teaches and trains them and then they become a family that now is called, given a new assignment. They are now taken by Paul and transplanted in a different place. It's an amazing thing, the power of the gospel. And one of the things that Aquila and Priscilla now are, are confronting are people who think they know something but don't really. And one of those is a man called Apollos. And Apollos comes after Paul and he begins to teach and preach, but his gospel isn't complete. So Aquila and Priscilla, they confront this guy. And they say, hey, you've got part of the story, but you don't have the whole story. Let's complete that. Let's close the circle. And they unleash Apollos into an amazing ministry. And we can track these two guys, Apollos and Paul. They don't walk together physically, but they walk together in the gospel. And Paul goes out and he plants churches. And he moves the dirt. And then Apollos comes behind him and he waters and he's, he's nurturing. And you would say in today's ministry, we can look all around us and see that a lot of times what happens is there's competition in, in what we would call our specific assignments. We would rate them as one is more important than the other. We would see certain pastors that would maybe jockey for positions or churches that would seem more important. And we look at these two guys and say, man, there must have been competition between Paul and Apollos. Paul must have been very, uh, very protective of the churches that he, he helped to start to say, hey, don't let that guy in here. He might teach something different. But we find in Titus that Paul makes reference to Apollos and says, there's no competition here. We are one in the gospel. Take care of him. He's following in my steps. What I am planting, he is watering. What I am trying to get going, he is nurturing. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, we find a letter written by Paul approximately five to seven years later after he had been involved in church planting of this church. He's received news that the church is not in good shape, it's divided. It's divided in such a way that it's become destructive. And so he writes this letter, and in the first part of the letter, he confronts the divisions. In the second part of the letter, he answers questions that these new believers are struggling with. Marriage, the Lord's Supper. He touches on very different thoughts throughout the last part of the letter. But the first part of the letter, he lays the foundation, and he takes them back to where they started. You see, these men and women, they were part of a, a culture in Corinth, it was multicultural. 
There were multiple languages being spoken. There were multiple, multiple cultures represented. There were economic divisions amongst people. There was a lot of white color, color, a lot of blue color. And so the church represented that. And in the church, they started to kind of consume each other. You see, they, they didn't understand the, the idea of calling and assignment. They were more focused in on attending. And so as they became more, fo- more focused in on attending, they became more focused in on following certain people and their teaching. And so we find that the division that they were now uh, facing was, hey, some of us are with Apollos. Some of us are with Paul. Or maybe some of us are more with Peter. And so Paul writes a letter and says, that's, that's garbage. And he takes them back to the gospel. So in chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians, he lays the foundation. He lays the foundation and takes them back and reminds them that there is no man or woman on this earth that can transform a life. There is no man or woman that can preach a message or teach a lesson or convince or manipulate enough that they can cause true transformation, that they can transform somebody from the inside out. There's no way. They can create and manipulate conformity to actions and lifestyles, but they can never do heart transformation. And so he takes them back to the idea that it's all about Jesus. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, he says in one seventeen. In 118, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power is found in Jesus, not in Paul or Apollos, not in any man, not in any woman. It's only in Jesus. So he takes them back and tries to remind them that this gospel that saved you is the same gospel that now empowers you for who you are in him and who he is you. And so as they began to move back to that, Paul gives a testimony. In chapter 3, read with me starting in verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are, you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. One of the greatest struggles in my life, and I'm pretty sure we all share this, is trying to figure out where you fit. What am I going to do? What am I going to be? Some of you get to be my age, and you feel disillusioned. This job I'm doing, doing it stinks. It's not fulfilling me. It's not providing correctly. I just don't know what I should be doing. And these are great moments. Don't get me wrong. They're great moments. But they're not moments to be jumped over. They're moments to be passed through. Because they bring us to a place where we grow in our understanding and our dependency for something very specific. You see, the gospel, when we believed, when we grasped 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, that this man, God, who walked on the earth and did not sin, who lived a life that we could not live, who then went to the cross and paid in a way we could not pay, who then was buried in a tomb and rose in a way we could not rise. And that message that saved us is now the message that gives us hope, not only in future things to come, but a hope in today that I don't have to live confused, lost, wandering. That there is clarity in purpose. That as an eternal created human being, I can have a perspective that moves beyond the, the measly 50, 60, 70, 80 years that he gives me here. And I can gain understanding that this is part of something greater and bigger than myself and these measly years on this earth. And so Paul lays out the power of the gospel and he gives some very, very interesting implications here. So I want you to stop and reflect as we go through this quickly because I only have a few minutes. Think through this. That's dangerous. Think through this. I want you to confront yourself this morning because we are all the same in this. I know there are some of you sitting here and you are feeling lost. Not lost because you're an unbeliever, but lost because you do not know your place. And I want you to confront yourself with what we're about to read. Paul says this in verse 5, What then is Apollos, what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Now this man Paul had every right to pump up his chest and say, Hey, look, I've done some amazing things. And you know what? I did some amazing things for you. I'm the reason, right? I'm the reason you are a church. I sacrificed and I was beaten and I suffered. I gave up so much for you. He doesn't start there. He doesn't start there and say, hey, I'm better than Apollos. He might look sharper. He might dress nicer. He might be more eloquent with his words, but no, 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 no. I'm the guy that God really used. Paul levels the playing field and he says in this moment, the implications of the gospel is that in that moment that we are born again, we surrender all. We don't just surrender a hope that we will not die and spend eternity separated from God. We surrender in that moment the leadership of our lives, which is a foreign concept for a culture that says pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, lead yourself forward, and make yourself your own man. And Paul says that's antithetical. It goes against the very premise of what it means to be a servant. You see, we have dreams, we have desires, we have plans and agendas. And we're encouraged by this world to do that, right? We think that we need to work it out. We need to plan it out. We need to figure it out. And if we don't, what is wrong with you? And what Paul says here is that there's one who has already figured it out, planned it out. There's one who has been throughout all of history, the greatest strategic mind in all of history, the Almighty God. In his mission, he has said to each one of us that you have a specific purpose in calling, that I am specifically involved in your life. I know you better than anyone because I'm not God with you, I am God in you. That I just didn't, Emmanuel, come to be with you now. That through the work of the Holy Spirit, I now indwell you. And I know you more and better than anybody else. Even more than you know yourself because I'm not corrupted by the sin that is affecting your ability. And so in that, I know what you should be doing. 
I know where you should be going. And if you would surrender to that as a servant, you can release the burden of trying to figure it out on your own. So as a master, Paul says, both, both Paul and Apollos are first and foremost servants of the one who is leading, who is directing, and who is guiding. And it is not because, as he has already established, because they are special, because they are missionaries, because they are sacred and the others are secular. No, he says, no, we're the same as everybody else. Matthew 16, 24 to 26, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's a paradox. Christianity is a paradox. If you lose it, you will find it. In the struggle, there is strength. In the tension, there is hope. But we avoid that at all costs. We run the other direction. And we celebrate the very things that Paul says here are not Christianity. Confront your heart. He then goes on and says this. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. As I went through this passage, I mean I've read this passage many times. And then when I started going through this passage and I was struggling in my own life about my specific assignment. And that word jumped out to me as it's never jumped out before. I've struggled throughout my walk with Jesus for many years that he cares enough about this miserable man, that he is involved with me, that he truly has a plan for me. I mean, he's got so many other things going on. How can he shepherd me? And then I realized, wait a minute, he's in me. He's not coming to me. He's already here. He's guiding me. He's loving me through the work of the Holy Spirit. And he is assigning me. You see, Paul lived this out. He changed assignment. He even changed his name. And this wasn't something that people looked at and said, that guy is crazy, because he did the same thing with other people. We have stories throughout all the New Testament of not just Aquila and Priscilla, where he raised them up and then moved them. It was like their third international move. I mean, people, that wasn't easy. We know that Onesimus was taken, and he was fleeing for his life. He thought he had it all under control. He leaves slavery behind. New assignment, I'm free man. And then he bumps into Paul. We don't know why, but he finds Paul in, a, in prison. And he, he's born again. And Paul doesn't say, hey man, you're free and you're in Christ. Go live your best life now. He says, no, go back to slavery. Your assignment is different now. And we know he marched back with a letter. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're resisting. But I can tell you this, that God has an assignment And he's not saying give up your job and move to a foreign country. What he's saying right now and speaking to you right now is that how do I use my job first? How does my occupation fulfill my vocation? How do I find out and understand how do I really become self-aware in Christ? How do I understand how he's wired me? The talents that he has given me. The gifts that he's enabled in me. 
And how do those release through me to do something supernatural? You see, the power of the local church, we would say that the church is the most powerful organism on the planet. And it's not because of the campus that you own. It's not because of the name on your sign. It's not because of the money that you raise. It's because you are men and women who have been transformed and assigned in the power of the Holy Spirit to do something you could not do in your own power. That leads to something supernatural. And Paul knew that. He was, he was just seeking to unleash that idea in the, the, the Corinthians. Hey, stop eating in and consuming yourselves, get outside of that and understand that none of us are worth anything apart from Jesus Christ. We all deserve condemnation. And left unto ourselves, we produce death, not life. But because of Jesus, he gives great purpose. He gives great direction. And he fills that gap in our hearts, in our souls, and he aligns us with his mission. Paul says this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Your worth is not in what you do. I don't care if you're the best surgeon, the greatest lawyer, or you do landscaping, or you do whatever it is. It doesn't matter if you are an administrative assistant, a nurse, a teacher. Those things are nice, but they are not who you are. Who you are is so different than what you do. And if you don't understand who you are, what you will do will always be disconnected from the mission of God. And so Paul is getting us back to the position saying that you need to dig deep and confront yourself at the soul level. Ask yourself very difficult questions. Why do I attend? Why do I lack purpose? Why do I not see God show up and do amazing things? Because, hey, we talk about him being a living God who is supernatural and desires to do incredible things, but I've not seen that yet. I've not experienced that yet. Why is it that my neighbors can live next to me and I don't know who they are? Why is it my coworkers can see more anger than joy? You see, the world will tell us that the gauge by which we measure the success in our life comes from what they have predetermined. The money we make, the things we accumulate, the sense of temporary fulfillment in doing a job, all these things are false. Because Paul says here at the end of the day, and some of us are moving there quickly, we will stand before the one. It says here in verse 8, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. God is going to determine and measure what we have done and what we have been. And we have to switch that order. 
It's what we are that makes a difference in what we do. So many of you today, I don't know, again, where you are, but I ask that you would take time today, that you would look deep into your hearts and ask tough questions. If you're 80 or you're 8, it does not matter. I have told my, my children that I am not concerned about their occupation. I am concerned about their vocation. Their vocation is way more important than their occupation. Even though the world wants to teach us that it's the opposite. It's time we rise up and fight back against that. The purpose and strength of the church needs to get back to the, the reformers' ideas. Because we need that level of reformation right now. And if we do that together, this church will not be known for the buildings that it has or the sign out front. It will be known because Dover, Delaware is impacted. Supernaturally through lives that are on assignment. And the mission of God will be evident here. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your work. Just so thankful, God, that you, uh, you use us. But in using us, you don't just discard us. You desire, desire to transform us and work through us before you accomplish things because of us. We're so thankful that you are a loving God. I pray for men and women who are seated here this morning if there are some that don't know you, that they would begin to question the truth about the gospel. I pray for those who have been born again. God, I pray that you would help them not to be confused and wandering, but to understand the, the beauty of the assignment that you have for them today. In Christ's name I pray.